Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Achtung, Achtung! Welcome to We Have Ways 12 Days of Christmas Guests, in which James and I talk to a famous face about their personal relationship with the Second World War. As you enjoy another day of turkey leftovers, have a listen to restaurateur Jack Stein about rations in the Second World War. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, James Holland. Uh, should we call, are these specials? Some of them have been special. <laughs> so, James, who are we talking to today? It's part of the Stein fraternity. It is Jack Stein. Jack, um, great to see you. And I knew we were going to hit it off because I met you at a cricket match and we talked cricket and then we talked about, <laughs> about the Second World War and then we talked about food. And it was just, we had a, that fantastic conversation, didn't we, after the match? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, I've this podcast is um it was the first podcast i ever found that there were so many episodes to go back to you know it got me through um through all the lockdowns so thank you guys it's been it's been a pleasure to um to have t- come on the journey and i've almost caught up but there is just so much so much there so um and uh, thanks for having me on <laughs> oh well, well thanks for thanks very much for joining us sorry if i'm a little hoarse as i was shouting at argentina and um Netherlands last night. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, now I mean now I'm in my forties. Obviously, as most forty-year-old men do, they become very fascinated by the Second World War. So um, you know, it's just I've just I'm just one of those. You know, <laughs> I am. What, that did, man. what did forty-year-old men get into before the Second World War? Were they? Were they? Was it Napoleon? Like, I suppose. But well, there wasn't a. Was there a long enough gap for that to sort of occur? Because that's the. I mean, because that is the joke, isn't it? That middle-aged men either take a mistress or um, take an interest in the operational level or something. I just think, think before the Second World War, they just accepted boring, mundane, middle, middle-aged life. It was that's just the way it is. That by that time, you really do have your pipe and slippers, and you're you're a total conformist. And if you're not, then obviously you're a, you're a social leper. But also the the you know the sort of you know, life expectancy is a lot, lot shorter, so you're probably you know retired. <laughs> so a, a philosophical uh, tilt we're on to start with um, <laughs> there we go <laughs> but, but jack when we were talking you you were you were talking with wonderment about the kangaroo route weren't you this quanta set up fly from australia to to singapore and and in the war they kept it going didn't they, they were going, going to ceylon and all that kind of stuff yeah 
so two places are very close to my heart. I love uh, cricket uh, and love surfing. So my wife's from Western Australia. Uh, she's from Perth. And uh, I go to Sri Lanka a lot to watch cricket and to surf. And there's a place there, Lake Kogula, which I has got a military air base next to. And we sort of always stay near nearby it. Um, my tuk-tuk driver lives like on the banks of it. And we were in Perth one day, just sort of, like looking out at the Swan River there, sort of the whacker in the background, you know, that horrible place that we just don't talk about. Um, and... Um, and um, my uh, father-in-law, who's Sicilian, who'd come over in the fifties from Sicily, um, was started going on about this 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 plane, this seaplane, this that used to fly to 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 um, Sri Lanka from Perth. And I was like, Nah, come on, what are you talking about? Um, there's no, I mean, how could you, you know, in the you know nineteen forty three or whenever it was, how could you possibly? stay aboard that he's like I was a they call it the double sunrise because the pilots would see two sunrises they'd be in the air for 35 hours and I was like he's like it's basically a you know a, a Catalina with you know, it's a petrol tank with wings um and that's how that's how I, I first heard about it but um but, you know apparently it served a, a really important function of taking sort of letters and information from Australia which was obviously quite important part of the Pacific theatre for for both sides to you know I'm, I've been to Darwin a few times and learned about the sort of bombings up there and I spent some time I know you have too James in the Solomon Islands I spent six months out there and uh you know that sort of whole trying to get the control of the Pacific in Australia was a big part of that and, and these these planes were, were taking messages from basically you know what was then occupied and unoccupied Australia through the Japanese territories and up to to Sri Lanka and then they could then pass those messages on to the the British which is incredible I couldn't believe it yeah that is absolutely amazing this idea of, of flying from um for, first to Singapore um from Brisbane was pioneered by Qantas, which is the oldest airliner um, air service in the world, weirdly. I think it was founded in 1920 or 1922 or something. Um, and they set it up in 1935 with these DH-86s, these Havilland 86s, which were kind of sort of biplane passenger planes. And the extraordinary thing about them is, is obviously the, the tickets were incredibly expensive. It took an incredibly long time and it was really, really dangerous. And lots of them just kept crashing. Uh, and But rather than sort of ground the route and, and kind of go, okay, well, there's a message here that, that this is just too dangerous to operate. They just cracked on. But what it meant was that by the start of the war, this idea of doing really long distance routes was already up and running. So they they had the form effectively. And they just kept it going, and, and then they kind of expanded it to Ceylon, and you had, as you say, you had the double sunrise. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I mean, I've done. Yeah, I've, li- I've listened to a couple of things online. One of the surviving pilots, Rex Senior, talking about this, and when you think, I mean, you know, the, the Swan River, they had to fly down it to try and get enough height to get over the Fremantle Bridge, which isn't a big bridge, but they were so full of petrol. And he tells a story about going up to the American base up at um, up at Geraldton and asking for something. You know, they had about. I don't know, two, 9,000 litres of fuel. And they're like, can we get, you know, 9,000 litres of fuel? And they're like, what are you doing with that? And he was like, oh, just selling it. <laughs> they're like, fair enough, and just gave it to him. <laughs> but this thing would like, and he, they would go, they would fly over at 1,500 feet. Um, and then on the way back, they'd come back at 12,000 feet with no oxygen. And as far as I can tell, they made nearly 300 crossings. Um, and they they didn't actually lose a single plane. But they they were navigating by the stars. They had no radios. They had, they had to whip out all the insulation. God, incredible! I mean, it's like I mean, 
I mean, I hate flying. I mean, I couldn't, I, you know, it's one of my, I ha, even I have to fly, I absolutely hate it. And the idea of flying in a, a petrol bomb on, on with wings, just, oh, God. <laughs> let alone, let alone sort of Catalinas, which were, of course, came in during the, you know, that they started to use in the war. They later, they had liberators as well. They were using liberators for this, this route. But you're right. It's just, it's, it's absolutely astonishing because it's a long way now. But it's a really long way in, from 1943, which is when they, they they start they start running the specific double sunrise how, route. How, from, of, how often did it run? Are we talking, you know, once a week or? Yeah, I think it's, it, it was weekly. Yeah, once once it was. I mean, the, it was, the British MP was one of the um, was one of the was one of the passengers on it. They took passengers, took about 800 passengers across the whole piece. But Edith Summershell, never heard of her, but she apparently was was one of the was one of the passengers. They were given a certificate called the Double Sunrise Certificate when they landed right. successfully. Right. But just to think, you land, you're taking off from a river and you're landing in a lake and you're going across the Indian Ocean and you're going across that bit of the Indian Ocean where, you know, where they were looking for the, for the Malaysian airlines. Yeah. It was some of the roughest conditions. I mean, hitting cyclones daily and this, this surviving pilot, or he's not surviving anymore, but when he was right, um, speaking, he was saying that, you know, you had no, pre-warning of a cyclone you'd just be like ah oh, there's one and you'd go you know none of this kind of a radar or anything that the airline pilots have these days and it was you know pretty rough i mean i mean just absolutely astonishing but what i was wondering is what were they taking what would these letters have been would it have been intelligence or you know what would it have been not just love letters i'm assuming well <laughs> it's obviously it's official it's official letters uh, and official papers but it absolutely is also love letters, and and it's absolutely vital to morale. I mean, you, you know, even the Nazis recognise that, and they don't really care about that. And the timing was the timing is absolutely everything because you you want to be flying over Japanese occupied territory at night, yeah, in in darkness, yeah. Which also means, as you point out, Jack, that you're then flying over sort of treacherous seas at the same, you know, at <laughs> yeah. at, at, a, at the same time. They started off with these five Catalinas that they used, and then they later progressed for away from seaplanes, but also onto these very long range liberators. But the problem with the Catalinas is, is, is you've got to strip everything out inside because obviously you've got to take on a vast amount of extra fuel that you wouldn't normally expect to take. So by the time it's actually taking off with all the mailbags and all the extra fuel, it's also incredibly heavy. And so it's, it's, you know, it is a seaplane Catalina. So. Getting it off the sea in the first place is not an easy task. I mean, the whole thing is just wrought with unbelievable danger. Well, there's that fine line, isn't there? You need a headwind to fly into, so you need it going in the right direction, but you need it not too strong that it's making the sea choppy and making things difficult. Um, my, I remember my grandfather telling me about he he flew, I think, to Alexandria in a sun in a Sunderland bef- at some point, and him telling me about them not being able to get out of Gibraltar because the weather was so bad and basically they 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 taxied out you know everyone like like you're in a boat smashed about in the water the pilot tried to tried to take off couldn't they went back round they taxied again and and this is all with the motion of a boat rather than rather than um of an air you know just taxiing as an aircraft they went round again and the pilot said well we've blown too much fuel on that we're gonna have to refuel and so they stayed the night tried again in the morning I mean, or 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 tried again at dawn, or whatever. I mean, it just, I mean, it just all sounds well. But Gibraltar killed many a good pilot, didn't it? And 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 people because because the runway was so short. 
So as soon as you try to put anything of any size on it, there was always a chance you were going to not take off and just end up straight in the sea. And weirdly, that's what happened to that's what happened to Screwball Burling. So he'd he'd survived Malta, you know, he'd become the kind of quickest, highest scoring ace for the Allies in the summer of 1942, and then he was sort of shipped back to back to Britain. And when they got to Gibraltar, his plane crashed. That he wasn't piloting; he was just a passenger. He was in hospital for six months. I went. I actually went when I was filming a TV show in in Australia. I went to Darwin. I learned about the raid on Darwin and things like that. And then afterwards, we went to a brewery, which I was extremely happy about. So we filmed this kind of um this microbrewery. And then and then they t- and then we were f- and then they, they like to surprise me on the show. They're like, right, we're going to fly out to the Pearl Farm, which is two hours sort of into absolutely nowhere. You know, you know, you, you couldn't be in a more you know, further away from civilization, and we flew on a, on a, on a Groom and Mallard, which was a is a seaplane from built in 1947. Bearing in mind, I like to fly on planes that were built in like 2020. You know, <laughs> with all the flyby work. anything older than that. I look at a 747 these days. I'm going, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, and this bloke was going, oh, it's brilliant. It's just like flying in an E-type Jag, and I'm going. It, it's not really though, is it? Because E-type Jags don't go, don't take off from the water and land on the water. And we went in this thing, and the, the, the film crew thought it would be hilarious to sort of put a GoPro on my head so they could film the abject fear as we sort of swung in onto this like tiny little. It, it was so strange. It was like this tiny little um, pearl farm, but it was like a Bond villain's lair because pearls. They had all these models out there that were filming, like a you know, like doing this modelly shoot, and they had all these guys running around in high vis. And the guy who ran it was very kind of authoritarian. So we landed. There's a film crew, a load of models, kind of doing this kind of modelly stuff. The kind of crew that were manning this island palace thing, and I was just like, "This is bizarre." Get me back on that plane. Get me out of here. Uh, um, Another thing I wanted to just briefly touch on. So I went to. I know you went to the Solomons, James. I remember. um, So I was actually out there for quite a while, um, uh, doing some some like charity work and. we went and, and saw all the sites, uh, you know. The so you were on Guadalcanal, were you? Or were you a different one? Uh, we were, and then we went over to, to Suva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called Suva, Suva Island. Uh, yeah, where, where um, yes. And we went to the place, so we actually learned to dive where JFK's PT-109 was 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 it was sunk um and then just talk when you i was talking about the importance of messages um the you know i know you obviously know the story of the guy they, they gave a guy, some guys a coconut fashion on the back where they were and they paddled off on canoes into the mangroves where there are a lot of crocodiles i mean i, I mean there's so many crocodiles out there i never expected i'm a surfer and i was surfing in the water one day and the local paddled up to me and said we got to get out because this is when the crocodiles feed on the reef and i'm like i'll take my chance with a shark any day of the week crocodile i'm not going anywhere near it so yeah and then we met the guy i mean he was still alive the um the guy that was um was one of the guys that paddled this this coconut with their location back to the back to the american base and he has this bright orange t-shirt on that said i saved jfk and i'm pretty sure not 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 many tourists come through that part of uh, the solomon islands has to be said so i think when they when they when they know that a tourist are coming he probably whips it out and puts it on but yeah fascinating guy but you know it's a I mean, what I mean, I mean, to be, I mean, that whole area, I mean, that battle, the, you know, the Crocodile River, the, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Alligator Creek, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. And it it was, I mean, we were there and it was just, it was the most amazing place. Um, Quite tough to travel around, it has to be said. But um, it's not easy, is it? No. And then we we sort of died, we did a bit of diving over some, you know, Japanese transporters and we went, we we were down in one. So you were, were you diving on Iron Bottom Sound? No, because it was, a lot of those wrecks are too deep because it's, but we, so on Suva, there's a couple. 
couple that are a bit closer to the shore. We went through a Japanese transport that had been torpedoed, and then down at the bottom there was a small tank, and then there was oh, like amazing. bottles of beer, there was condoms, there was all sorts. It was so strange, like, like to have these like, Japanese military in- issued condoms still there oh, at the bottom. Um, um, yeah, it's yeah, amazing really, place. really is. I, I, I really like Guadalcanal, and I really like all the people, though. It's, it, it's, it's. You know, they all, they all chew that beetle nut stuff. So, so, so they've all got incredibly, yeah. it looks like they've got lipstick on, but they've got incredibly bright red, red, yeah. um, lips. Um, and if they're kind of over 30, all their teeth are just completely black. But what is absolutely for sure is that the health and safety executive has not reached Guadalcanal in any shape or form, not only with, with beetle nut, but also with the huge amount of ordnance that's just still there. Well, it's because they, they, they mix it with lime, don't they? Which is the same lime that you would put on, on grave sites. So it, it decays the, the, the flesh of the lips. So that, I mean, we went up and looked at some of the tunnels and, and there's like every, every like sort of small house has got like half a tank or a machine gun in the back garden. I mean, it's incredible. We, um, it's quite a funny story actually. So I was working with a, an NGO that is attached to the hospital and the lady there, she was, they have these, one talk tribal systems and they'll have their individual rules and this lady was a doctor so she's in in um in honiara and she had a it's a lovely house but because of her tribal system the one talk system that they had is meant that you have to share everything so every weekend all the lads from the village would come down just get out on the on the lash and um she'd had enough of it because she's you know working in the hospital and she's so she built another house with only one door because in their their one talk tribe you could, uh, a man and woman can't share the same door so once she'd built a house with only one door they no, they didn't come down anymore and she was she was free every weekend from just <laughs> these lads partying amazing <laughs> funny but I remember I remember sort of being taken up to Galloping Horse and I had a kind of you know a local guide he was just some lad chewing beetle nut with no shoes on and he just led me up this path and what I didn't realise was that, the, that that was like my first day out there where all the guys, all the film crew were doing something else. And then first thing the following morning, I had to have this this safety briefing from a mind-clearing guy. He then told me, you know, under no circumstances should you be walking anywhere on, you know, on Guadalcanal without them and their metal detectors and all the kit they've got for kind of finding ordnance. And I've been sort of picking up bullets and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just don't do it, people. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, when I went to Croatia a long time ago, we went, to, we, we'd had the, that mine briefing and I was in Sarajevo and the other comedian and I realized we were walking up a railway, disused railway line by ourselves, which was plainly exactly the place we weren't supposed to be that would be booby booby trapped in mind. And you think, oh, bollocks. <laughs> this, this was a mistake. But I mean, fortunately, I lived, I lived to tell the tale, but it is that thing of, uh, you know, it seems like a normal place, and then you realise it's actually brimful of crap and um, ordnance and things things designed to kill you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember also going across across the Alamein battlefield with a with a inverted commas Bedouin guide who clearly wasn't a Bedouin and clearly wasn't a guide and had never been there before. Um, and and I realized, I knew perfectly well where we were, and and, and it wasn't where we should be, uh, and that was quite tense. But again, I lived to tell the tale. I'm glad to say. Another thing we did recently is we, um, cause my family's German, um, and yeah, it'd be really interesting listening to some of the podcasts that you've done, uh, you know, talking to people who've, who've got families in Germany. And so our family was, was yes, German. Yes, you've got and, this family in Dusseldorf, haven't you? Yeah. So, um, so, um, so my dad's 
grandpa he moved over so it's quite an interesting story so they were they were they brewers so our family were, uh, made alcohol and um in, in the late in the sort of 1880s the the father sent all of his sons to different parts of the world so my great great granddad whatever where he came to 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 london to learn about gin uh, another one went to Kentucky. Another one went to Scotland. Like they were basically like lo- looking at different types of spirits, like research. So anyway, he got to um, to London, and then wrote to, back to his father and said, um, "I'm not coming home because uh, I think alcohol is is of the past." And he and petroleum had just started to come to come into kind of you know you know into into view. And he said, "I think the next century is going to be about this." Um, and then he founded a company that would later become BP. Unfortunately, he sold it very early because oh. um, you know. <laughs> but, so he stayed in 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 London, and obviously you know that's our, our 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 lineage. But we went back to to Dusseldorf, where our family were from, and it was this. We had this two hundred and fifty room massive hotel um just near it's sort of just in the rhineland somewhere but a little bit out of Dusseldorf and and anyway but it was it was this amazing experience of having the generation of the war who were all sort of dying out but literally doing lectures on, on what we did in the war and it was incredibly moving i mean it was you know it was very that we need to tell everything that happened with our families the steins the schmitz and obviously we were in alcohol and fermentation so we were i think our kind of factories were re, for reconstituted for making uh i think like petrol or diesel or, or something you know some some sort of like chemical that would help the War effort and and the the Smiths were doing machine parts and and it was like it was so strange because we had gone over there typical Brits don't mention the war this kind of stuff you know we got there and we didn't expect it to be quite the way it was but it was this massive free lectures every every hour there's another lecture about what 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 we actually did what you know where we were positioned and we weren't like it wasn't they weren't nazis by any stretch of imagination they were they were just you know they were just in industry in industry so they were repurposed for the war and it was incredibly moving i mean just i mean it was also a bit like in in the simpsons when the ned flanders all meet the family of ned flanders it was like all these germans that look exactly like our family a very strong sort of germanic genes going through our family or something because we all, I was like, it looks like dad, about eighteen dads over there, and six of my uncle John, and you know this, that, and the other. But it was, um, it was, it was very. I don't know. It was just like a, a, an incredibly moving experience for us all. Because you know, when you've got a family that split, you know, split between the two countries during the first and and second world wars, or you know, it, it's it's sort of you know, you think, well, you know, what did we do? And and we found out, and it was it was really moving. Gosh, that's fascinating. What an extraordinary thing. There's that, that Stephen Polyakov film, isn't there, where there's a family reunion and it's just unexpected stories from the past and emerge. But um, I'm quite envious of Al's wartime family heritage because I don't really have any. Um, uh, but I've got to say that sort of trumps it, really. I mean, that's 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 probably good. Yeah, my yeah, it's 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 sort of yeah. But it was good that we didn't turn up any really bad sort of, you know, like um, you know, anything particularly bad. But there was there was a picture of of a wedding, uh, and Goebbels was a guest at the wedding. So it was at that point it was getting a little bit close to to maybe the last lecture is going to be, you know, this kind of big revelation of of what you know what we did what none of us really wanted to hear. But as it happened, it was Part just of the a, Nazi in a circle. Yeah, friend of a friend of a friend. <laughs> <laughs> having just got married myself there was a couple of people at my wedding i didn't really know so i'd just like to hope that that was probably you know maybe it was a wedding crasher <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Go- goebbels had just kind of turned well i suppose up. if goebbels turned up you'd have to find him a seat wouldn't you you wouldn't really be able to get around that 
there must actually be plenty of families with with where they bifurcate at, at you know at some point in the twenty twentieth century, and you know the, the, you could argue the royal family have have got exactly the same issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I guess yeah, it, at, you know, in the turn of the twentieth century, it was you know Germany was you know um, you know a high point a high point in culture and, and and all that sort of stuff, and London yeah. was you know the two would have been crossed you know intermingling a bit. It was just it was fun, it was it must have been quite difficult you know for families who were. Still quite German, as I imagine my family were at the time, being the first generation to settle, they would have had the accent and spoke the spoke German as a first language. For then, you know, during the First World War, it would have been quite really quite difficult. And I guess that's why the I think the royal family changed their name, didn't they? I guess because you know, and lots of families did. I think I don't think ours did, but then I don't know. Maybe we we're making too much petrol. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 maybe they maybe they called it British Petroleum to hide behind the. <laughs> I mean, I have to yeah, say, I, I, you know, I wish I had that kind of business now to spot the the next petrol, whatever it is. I know, <laughs> but it's a bit like spotting the next pet. It's like, you know, spotting Facebook and then selling it in the second day to Bono or whatever, you know. <laughs> hey, welcome to IKEA, where even this desk is circular. Huh? How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com/circular. Visit ikea-usa.com/circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.
one of the funny things that the, the bit about this, the German family is they set up, they also set up the first alcohol rehabilitation clinic in Europe uh, ever. So they were making the stuff, <laughs> selling it, getting everyone plastered and, and giving them rehab and sending them back out on their way to buy more. It's just, <laughs> I said, I said to dad, it's a bit like the lobster hatchery down in Padstow, the way they hatch little lobsters and set them out. And then, <laughs> then we buy them, we sell them and then we get them again. <laughs> Um, but Jack, I've got to tell you, we're, we're sort of half thinking. No, I'm going to say we are thinking because I've got to. I've, I, I, you can sense that I'm weakening on this, but I'm, I'm, I mustn't. I must be strong. Um, we're thinking of doing a 1940s rationing diet for um, for Lent. Yeah. Well, you're going to follow it. You try. Yeah, we're going to do the wartime diet. We're, we're going to pioneer it, and actually, it's going to make us rich because we're going to do diet books, which are going to rival all the biggest that have ever been produced. Yep. Well, it's sort of like sort of like a paleo book, you know those those great diets of the Paleolithic era where people died at twenty. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the this is the diet that that won us the Second World War, Jack. That's the idea, you know. That's the point. It's delivering victory. I thought that was logistics. Well, it is. It is logistics. <laughs> it, uh, w- w- well done. Um, it is logistics because by. <laughs> By producing more food at home and making sure that everyone had a balanced diet, A, you had a stronger, better, healthier workforce, but also you could free up shipping space for other things other than grain and, and from, from North America and meat from the Argentine, etc. So what was, what was rationed then? What, what sort of things would, been, would have been rationed? Well, it, rationing changed as the war progressed, and so it, was, it only came in in January 1940. And and, and I'm very much in favour of doing the 40 diet rather than the 43 to 45 one, um, which was a bit more stringent. So bread was never rationed, sugar was, meat was, not least because a lot of the meat came. It did come from the Argentine, and, and obviously you don't want to use shipping space transporting meat from Argentina. Um, but also a lot of bacon came from places like Denmark, of course. And um, when the when Europe was cut off. Um, in June 19, you know, May, June 1940, that was that, you know, all those markets were just suddenly closed to Britain. So it was all about cereals, really, and, um, and about growing your own veg. This is the whole kind of dip for, dig for victory idea. So that what, even if it doesn't matter how small your garden is, you dig it up and you grow veg. So obviously the sort of things that are, 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 are short are overseas fruit. Um, but, but you can have as many, as much, you know, as many apples you can grow and, and eat. That's brilliant. And of course, the great thing about apples is you can actually store them throughout the winter if you're, if you're careful. You can pickle stuff and you can dry store apples and they're all right and cook them up. This sounds like the menu of a sort of Scandinavian Michelin restaurant, this does, you know, sort of, you know, overwintering and clamping and things well, like that. And a game, you know, you, game isn't rationed. I mean, it's interesting. Fish isn't, but the price goes up as the war runs. So, and bread isn't. It's interesting that bread isn't rationed until after the war. That it's um it's the labor labor government austerity that that ration you know post war debt paying that ends up ends up um rationing bread it's the fascinating. Well, I mean, I do I do remember somebody um being interviewed in Wiltshire um about Brexit, saying that we could maybe do this kind of thing to 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 help with Brexit, which I thought was um, an interesting take on um on on putting in economic sanctions on yourself uh, <laughs> we could all plant food in our gardens and to look at the guy i would say he was probably not gonna be the first person to try it but um but who knows 
<laughs> but I also, but I, wasn't there something? I'm sure I read something about that. The, there was a sort of a health benefit, almost. I know it sounds terrible in in wartime, but of this sort of diet. I remember seeing it was there was a bit of an uptick in in longevity of people that had been through it, or something along those lines. Absolutely, but br- British people have never been healthier because ev- the whole point was that everyone would get a balanced diet. It prevents people from from stockpiling and hoarding, and. They were very sensible that if you were if you had sort of hard physical labour in the fields or in, in in a factory or whatever, then you got a little bit more, and it meant that even the even the poorest were eating reasonably well. That was the point about it. And of course, if you're if you're all if you're eating well and you've got a really good balanced diet, then you're less likely to get ill. If you're less likely to get ill, then you can do more man hours in in your factory, which which means your your productivity goes up. Yeah. Sounds like I mean, communism to me, James. Well, well, I mean, this this is why people, a lot of people, are quite keen on it. I mean, restaurants were li- uh, from May nineteen forty two. Li- restaurants were limited to three courses. That's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, it's it's come to that. Only one component dish could contain fish or game or poultry, but not more, not more than one of these. So you know that, that that's a vegetarian starter and a conventional pudding, isn't it? Honestly, honestly, Al, that sounds like the conversations we're having at the moment on our menus. Honestly, with the with the economic situation for next year, it's basically like one one fish, one meat, one vegetarian. That's about it. Yeah. Well, uh, no meals between eleven and f- eleven p.m. and five a.m. without a special license. No kebabs and then. The maximum price of a meal five shillings, which is the equivalent of roughly the equivalent of twelve quid now. But what, what what was happening in the because I'm I wasn't the London restaurant scenes are sort of the you know the big I remember listening it was probably your podcast talking about uh, people who were staying in London that were high high value people staying in the Ritz and the Dorchester or whatever Claridge's was a big one wasn't it yeah so they were still were they still serving all their usual kind of foie gras and sort of first growth you know claret or was it very restricted well to them? Don't, don't forget these these leading restaurants they have huge sellers so enough to kind of last them five years so it, it you know and obviously the amount of dining is going down so the weekly stress on the seller is not as great but they you know stuff that you've already got isn't rationed it's 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 stuff in the moment that's rationed so you, you just you know and there are ways of doing things as you say there's you know game is still perfectly acceptable so you know if you know someone who's got an estate in scotland and can get you some venison then you know happy days you know, it's as simple as that. Well, I think you could write. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you were looking, I mean, you, I mean, I, I joke about the Scandinavian restaurants, but places like Noma, you know, best restaurant in the world, as, as voted for by by people that like lists. Um, they, um, that you know, they they have this very focused local. Like, they don't have any chocolate, any sugar, or anything like that. Nothing imported, and no berries that don't come from you know, like you know, a reindeer's asshole, you know, sort of that sort of thing, <laughs> and um, and a lot of lichens and mosses. But actually, I think if you're looking at rationing and and actually using that as a kind of way of saying right what can we get seasonally and what can we do say to overwinter stuff like you're saying pickling salting and clamping i don't know if you know what clamping is when you take vegetables and you bury them in sand um and they basically preserve them through the winter wow. yeah so you can things like uh, beetroots carrots and potatoes and things like that you basically pick them so they stop growing and then you basically put them in sand and and they sort of they don't ferment they go they're very it's very cool but it, they, it does give this amazing flavor because they do obviously it, they slightly shrink and intensify in flavor so i think there's a really there's a really good 
menu that you could do, which basically focuses in on the things you can get. So obviously the game, some fish, some of the like the seasonal stuff, but also how you might extend those things through the winter. And that, yeah, and again, like you know, the classic one people always will use is you know Italians don't use tomatoes in winter. They use tomatoes that they've grown in summer that they've they've put into jars and they've preserved. But Brits thinking, you know, we have this kind of 365 days of the year kind of larder of everything we want flown in from wherever it needs to come from. We think of, you know, fresh tomatoes in February as being great, even though they taste of absolutely nothing. Um, But actually, so I think that I think the idea of a, a... you know, looking at that as a menu and what you could do for for a period of time, I think you'd I think you'd have a it'd be in, intellectually interesting as a chef. I think because you were really kind of not able to reach for things that you, you you'd normally reach for to get flavour. So you'd you would be like looking at a lot of like pickling and fermenting and things like. And obviously, I don't know how much sauerkraut would go down well in 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 wartime Britain, but um, but things like kimchi and things like that. There's other ways around it, but you can make some fantastic tasting stuff from from stuff that you can grow. And, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you actually. I tried to grow stuff during lockdown and gave up and just listened to this podcast. So, um, but um, there is a there's a there's a, there's a veg patch out the back and a bit of sourdough starter in the freezer that I never did anything with. Um, so I think it'd be really interesting. I mean, be I mean, a- the, the the things that are, are rationed right from the word go are bacon, butter, and sugar, and then later it's 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 all meat, tea, jam, cheese, eggs, lard, milk. Canned food, all that stuff is all is all rationed. I, I think if we just went for kind of you know rationing, actually in retrospect, we're thinking about it. Um, if we just went for the kind of <laughs> no sugar, butter, and bacon, I don't think it's much of a diet to be honest. But but it's interesting because you can have as much bread as you like. That's never rationed, and you, and as I say, you can have as much you can have as much much veg as you like. Yeah, but no, exactly, and, and game as well. I think game is a game is you know in this era of mass meat production and eat, you know and and kind of all the sustainability issues that come with it, all that game is the one kind of thing that I think shines through and so it, as as like a, a a good alternative if you're if you do have ethical concerns about how much meat you're eating, game is fantastic because you know it's grown you know it grows wild all over the country and you know and supports local communities where it's caught uh, or shot as it's more commonly called and um, yeah so I think that's that'd be really interesting too um the more we talk about this jim and especially talking to someone who knows about food and how food works i was faintly dreading it because because now we're getting quite excited aren't we exactly yeah yeah i mean i I mean whether we recreate appalling wartime margarines and all that sort of thing to um to to, to, a bit of butter that's the point I mean, you can. I just think you've got to think of something a little bit more. You know, you can't just sort of you can't sort of lather it with olive oil because no one had olive oil in 1940. Yeah, but when it comes to butter, my problem is is because I did Hell's Kitchen 16 years ago. I was I was taught to basically put a pat, half a pat of butter into everything I cooked, and yes. and I've had to gradually tickle myself out of that. Well, you're going to have to tickle yourself out of it a little bit more if, you, if we're, if we're going to be serious Well, I won't be able to make my tart tatan, put it that way, with 250 grams of sugar and 250 grams of butter. For, no, but, you, for, you, but you'll be able to do, I don't know, I don't know what else you could do with your apple. Well, you just have to eat them raw. I guess, are you going to sort of do, I mean, I, I was just thinking then, like, you know, if you wanted to have venison, maybe you have to go on a 20-mile walk before to sort of simulate stalking it. You know, maybe that could get a bit of sort of live live history and, you know. Quite like that. <laughs> go, to, go, go, to, go to Richmond Park and <laughs> walk around Hogarth's, Hogarth's Gardens. <laughs> 
go and look at go and look at go at Staveley Road and look at the V2 site, which I do. My dad lives just down the road from it, so you know, I took you know, took my wife there, and she was like, um, "Oh yeah, it's just like a suburban road." That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is just around the corner from here. That uh, and many many a child of mine. Well, I mean, that that, that sounds makes me sound like Boris Johnson. My children have my children have been. Um, uh, uh, you know, re- boringly reminded of that every time we're in the vicinity. Hey, you know what happened here? There was a bus. There was a bus going by, wasn't there? That's the thing. It's um, uh, it's a ma- it was a major tragedy. Anyway, the the but but yes, I'm I'm warming to this idea, Jim. Actually, I, and I yes. also think because it's spring. If we're doing it in Lent, it'll be spring. So the if we relied on the sort of seasonal changes, yeah. things may yeah. come good by Easter. In a yeah, way that if yes. you were doing it now and you're going into Christmas on this rationing, it might yes. that might be pretty miserable. Yeah, um, when is when is Lent? Lent twenty twenty three. March. Wednesday the twenty second of February to Thursday the sixth of April. That's so bad, Ooh, is it? That, mm, no, it's tough. That's quite they, soon. Well, they, call, they call it the the hunger gap. So we we work with a couple of farmers um, down here in Cornwall, and they they are literally like February is there's nothing nothing in the ground. You're going to be there's a few clamped beetroots and a bit of potato and and, and some kales, and that's pretty much a lot. It's a really tough time. So um, yeah, if you've, you've got a greenhouse, maybe start <laughs> planting something in it now. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I think I, I think I can still buy veg. There's a there's a local veg place, and obviously they'll still be doing the. Presumably, still doing leeks. Just about, I don't know. Well, I think yeah, I think it would be interesting. I think if you, it's, it, you, I guess you're going to go to your green grocer and say, I can only buy stuff that's been grown in the UK. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you can only buy game that's been shot in the UK. Yeah. Um, fish wasn't rationed, incidentally. Fish fish wasn't no, rationed at all. Happy days. It's just really expensive, but cost do you have a budget, do you? Do you have a budget? No, for no, it? God in the hell no, no, good, no. good. No, all right, no. well let's get turbot. <laughs> we'll have to treat ourselves once a week. <laughs> we'll have six turbots a week. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Eighteen lobsters. <laughs> yeah, you have all that. <laughs> it was quite funny during well not funny because it was a terrible time but during the covid lockdowns it, there was obviously fishermen going out and getting lobsters down in padstow and it was yeah, really hot remember that first lockdown was really nice weather yeah go down to town with like 20 quid cash and just a uh, lobster fisherman would come up to you and you'd be like they and you get like four lobsters for 20 quid and we'd go back wow. and i'd be like I shouldn't. Put, I'm not putting this up on my social media because there's people having an absolute nightmare. They can't even get to the park, and there's me just uh, walking around Padstow with this, you know, these. And th- there was it was so quiet that they'd brought all of their pots into the harbour, so all their holding pots were just in the harbour. So they'd literally pull the pot up and just fish them out. Um, How amazing! Yeah, and I said I phoned up the old man. I said like because he was in Australia, he was stuck out there, and I said honestly, it's like yeah, it's 20 degrees, it's six in the morning, seven in the morning, whatever. It's a beautiful day. I'm buying lobsters for cash. He goes, oh, it's like the 1960s all over again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like the 1940s where you know you, no, could, absolutely. you could be pulling up a mine <laughs> rather than a lobster. It's um so so I I I, I mean I definitely think that you've got I, I think it'd be a really interesting thing to do. Play I think, with here. Yeah, I do. And I think also it's sort of, you know, I think not saying that this is going to be a positive, but, you know, people, you know, buying more British, I think, is despite which way you voted in in a, in a, a recent referendum, um, I, you know, people on, often Brexiteers, they often say we need to buy more British. Um, but it's so maybe it would maybe it would help with that. I mean, we've been trying to make this make this argument for fish and shellfish for a long time that, you know, if we can keep more of it in the UK, that that's maybe a positive for the fishermen. But um, uh, it, 
I mean, it seems a bit of a mess to me, to be honest. But um, but yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe this could sort of help listeners kind of think about what they might be able to do for themselves with with regards to buying you know more british stuff because just finding out what is seasonal at that time of the year february march is is quite tough but there's a lot of game about and there's a few yep. brussels sprouts and you are eating a lot of beetroot and kale um and um yeah not a lot of well, sugar. i really like beetroot i really really like it and it's and it's it's one of those things that lots of people don't we, we subscribe to what's in life on the veg what's yeah. on um River Riverford, Riverford, yeah, and they were always getting beetroot. And Rachel would just look at me and go, "Well, here's your beetroot. Well done. You know, this really is time to <laughs> knock this on the head." See, I hate, um, I hate beetroot. So I mean, uh, well, no, I did hate you it. Know, you're talking point. me back out of this whole thing now. <laughs> no, no, no. But I did hate it. I did hate it. But then I got really into it. I've, I've now I really, really like it. I, I think you should give it another go. It's funny though, because um, for some reason, and I'm sure there'll be Australian listeners out there that disagree, but Australians seem to universally like it. Yeah. They have it on everything, on burgers, yeah. and, and it's like, I can't, I mean, a whole nation is under the spell of one kind of, you know, one Veg. vegetable. It's unbelievable. And yes. Yeah, their sort of fancy, amped up burger in, in their equivalent of the Burger King is a burger with a beetroot in it. <laughs> yeah. I, I did not know that about it's the Aussies. That's horrible. very weird. Absolutely mm. disgusting. Well, I mean, you, there'll be loads of correspondents saying I'm Australian and I don't like it, but my wife and all of her family and all of my dad's wife's family, they're just constantly putting beetroot on everything, which is which I don't mind beetroot, but it's um, yeah, it's it's just weird because I think in this country it's a bit of a Marmite thing. People either love it or they hate it. Well, I've, I've, I've come, I did hate it, but I've come around to it. I've, I've gone from one extreme. Well, I'm going to just lump it. Day. I'm going to have to lump it for Lent, aren't I? <laughs> lump it for Lent. <laughs> Well, but I think there's fun to be had from from going around and finding, as you say, Jack, is finding out what's there. You know what, what's what's available. Going to the your fruit and veg seller. Yeah, and it, and having that that's why that's where the, the sort of comparison with the Scandinavian sort of um, reindeer mosque restaurants is is that they use it as very much an intellectual kind of thing for their menus to kind of almost like because it's easy these days to just reach for stuff that comes from all over the place but actually yeah. to to think about really what the the people in in britain would have faced re- the reality of what they could get in in february march i think it would be really interesting i think it would yeah. make i think it would make some some really interesting kind of conversations and some you know some interesting meals <laughs> for sure but- yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're talking six weeks, aren't we? This, 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 the you can do it for six weeks. Well, it's forty days, isn't it? Uh, Lent is, yeah. Oh God, it's I thought it was just a weekend. I didn't. Sorry, I must have missed that. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, just luck. a weekend of beetroot. <laughs> <That's>... Good luck. <laughs> it's forty days. Forty days of beetroot. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm absolutely pumped for it, and I'm I'm totally up for it. Is alcohol rationed? Um, a beer isn't rationed. Um, no, uh, beer's but, not rationed. But booze is hard to come by. Yeah, anything in. But the whole point is, is to get, get me in limbo, get me in limb me into shape for for the cricket season. That's the whole point. Well, of like, it. yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. so I actually would quite like to lose some weight. To be honest, oh, I think you look good, James. You, you know, you, you had a well, few good you, but, shots. But, well, yeah, yeah, all right. But I put on I put on my 1930s suit the other day, and the good thing about it is it's it's you know it's a sharp look. The bad thing about <laughs> it is that the trousers does you know comes up to your belly button, and <laughs> it was tougher to. Bring it, you know, draw the two parts together, I've got to say. I mean, I suddenly thought, bloody hell, since July, the last time I wore this, this is, um, you know, I've I've, 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 I've put on a few pounds. Well, it's just that pre-Christmas period, you know, there's a bit of festive weight gain and, and yeah. I mean, so it's probably be, be quite good, be quite cathartic in February to sort of, 
you know, February is always a different, you know, January is, you know, you get up to that kind of, you know, Christmas is great fun. And then January, everyone turns vegan or does, or goes to the gym for half a day. Um, and then somebody t- points out that today is the most depressing day in, of the year. And you're going, Oh, Jesus. Okay. And then I'll, I'll, Feb- I will finish off that, bo- that bowl of lint chocolate then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm in Australia for that period, so um, so I'll be um, I'll be I'll be I'll be eating lots of beetroot, but also sunning sunning myself and trying to play cricket. <laughs> Australian Christmases are unnatural and against well, against that's why God. That, yeah, yeah, we're flying out on the 27th. Yeah, oh, my, okay. my, the old man says um, yeah, we're not having a, a barbecue on Bondi. It's just not it's not happening. <laughs> so when do you get back then? So so I'll be back in February, early February. Right. Okay, so just in time to, to, to guide us through our trauma. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Jack, thanks so much for taking time out to talk to us. Um, so you're, you're a busy man. And, uh, yeah, I think we, we reconvene in February where you, you present us with an appalling menu. Of, Absolutely. Of, of roots and grubs. <laughs> maybe something for the We Have Ways Festival. I was talking to Nick about it the other day. We great. We maybe we could do a little uh, a little cooking demonstration of, some rash, of what we did ration-wise for, for the menu. Oh, well, we'd absolutely love that. We That'd would absolutely love that. It'd be amazing. Yes, please. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we've been talking to Jack Stein. We hope to see you all soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. Bye.